You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hey, Narcotica listeners, Zach Siegel here bringing you a special episode this week. I'm flying solo. Chris and Troy, they are busy cranking out some new shit, but I think you'll like what's in store for you. This segment is a recording of a panel I moderated last week when I was in New Orleans for the 12th National Harm Reduction Conference put on by the Harm Reduction Coalition. I must say, if you've never been to one of these conferences, holy shit, you are missing out. There's a fashion show, a dance party, and just some of the most fun, inspiring, just the most welcoming people you'll ever meet. Before the show gets started, I just want to go on a little rant coming out of this conference. I just feel extremely energized to do good drug journalism. There are tons of stories that just aren't getting told. There are so many amazing, impressive people doing inspiring things that just aren't being heard. So, look, a lot of people at the conference complained about bad, stigmatizing media, which it only further solidifies like, what the hell I'm doing with my life. I don't make that much money. I work pretty much all the time, but it's so fucking worth it. And this podcast, Narcotica, is so worth it. People, they are hungry for the stories we're telling. We got great feedback about the show. People are listening. That's really cool, so thank you. And and finally, I just want to say, everyone at this conference, especially the drug users who are organizing and saving each other because no one else will, they deserve better from media. They deserve better than some of the recent exploitive parachute-in-with-the-cops DEA-adjacent journalism. So, without further ado, let's start the show. moderating the conversation. My name is Zachary Siegel. I'm a freelance journalist. I mostly cover public health and criminal justice. Um, I write for just a bunch of different outlets. And so I also co-host a, a new podcast called Narcotica. It's a no bullshit podcast about drugs and the people who use them. So this panel was originally the brainchild of Michael Collins from the Drug Policy Alliance. However, he's currently in Spain, I think, doing legislation on cannabis. So I, yeah, stepped up to, to do this. Okay, so I think this is a really important topic and a really complex one. And I think the, one of the takeaways is we hope to come to a narrative, a story that we can leave this room with and take out into the world because illicit fentanyl, it's the number one driver of the overdose crisis. And there 
is so much misinformation about this drug in the media. And my colleagues in the media do a very poor job accurately, objectively getting the risk and real scientific chemical nature of this drug out there. And so 72,000 people died last year, and the majority of those people died from fentanyl overdoses mixed with other drugs. And a lot of people dying from this drug might not even know it's in their bag. So this is, as this panel will discuss, a, a sort of contagion. It's a poison. It's an adulterant. And the reaction has been very typically US, a draconian policy response. Bad policy is responding to a public health crisis yet again. And so, you know, we cannot arrest a way out of this epidemic. Has anybody heard that before? We are still arresting a way out of this crisis, and it's not working. And that progressive slogan is said by both major parties, as well as cops and prosecutors and judges. They'll say we need a public health approach, but rarely do they ever spell out what, what that is. So to get started, um, I want to introduce the panelists. Um, to my immediate left is Lindsay LaSalle from the Drug Policy Alliance in California. And she has recently, last year, authored a, a hugely important report about drug-induced homicide, and so we'll be talking about that. That's one among many bad policy responses to this crisis. Um, to her left is Jasmine Taylor from the Human Rights Watch. Tyler. Tyler, Tyler. She is based in Washington, D.C. And we have Dan Ciccaroni from San Francisco. He's the uh, principal investigator of heroin in transition. And we also have Will Miller Jr. from Be More Power in Baltimore. So to, to get things started, I'd like to begin with, with Lindsay. Um, can you spell out the iron law of prohibition for us? And how is prohibition in part responsible for the proliferation of illicit fentanyl? Sure. Um, but you said the iron law of prohibition basically refers to the ways in which our laws and policies actually impact drug market trends, the black market, what people are using. So if we take the example of fentanyl, for instance, um, we see that, um, you know, as, as history has shown, that um, the drug market reacts um, to our policies. And so, the smaller amount of fentanyl, um, the more compact it is, the more potent it is, the more easy it is, right, to get across the country. Um, you're talking about um, an amount that is, um, pales in comparison to how much um, heroin you would also have to bring over. Um, and so this plays out in really weird, in really, um, relevant ways. So for instance, the United States Sentencing Commission um, recently had proposed amendments to the federal sentencing guidelines. And they proposed that all synthetic drugs be treated as a class, 
regardless of their potency, regardless of their purity, regardless of their risk to people who use them. And so you can understand how that type of a policy provides no incentive for people um, to sell drugs that are less risky. In fact, it incentivizes them to sell the most risky drug because it is easiest um, to smuggle and because um, there isn't any distinction in the type of penalty that they would receive um, for that conduct. Um, it's the same thing with novel psychoactive substances, often that are um, unscheduled. And so people who might prefer to use marijuana, a very um, safe substance, very little risk, actually might turn to a synthetic cannabinoid, which is significantly riskier because some synthetic cannabinoids have not been scheduled and so therefore are not um, illegal. And so they, they turn to a riskier substances because of the ways in which our laws um, impinge upon the black market. And I also wonder if maybe Dan can add in to talk a little bit about the real world implications in terms of um, drug market trends with respect to fentanyl and what we're seeing kind of on the ground. First of all, hi everybody. It's just, it's just great to be here. You know, I look every two years I look forward to being here. Uh, this community, this movement, it is a movement, capital letters. Um, and so thank you all for being here. And thanks for being part of this, part of my community. Um, so uh, I believe in the, the iron law of prohibition. I believe that um, fentanyl is a direct result of, uh, of, of pressure put on uh, the pill market. Um, uh, pills were safer, they are safer. Uh, and yet moral panic over the pills led to um, uh, heroin supplies coming up. Uh, there isn't enough heroin. Uh, produced to meet uh, the, the spillover demand from the loss of the pill market, and now fentanyl's being brought in. Uh, highly potent, in low volumes, it sneaks in small amounts. All the fentanyl that comes into this country would fit into 10 oil barrels. All of it per year, right? And so try to stop that, right? Um, so the entire fallacy of the entire supply side movement, the idea that we can stop the flow of drugs, that we can stop, is ended with fentanyl. It is the end of interdiction, right? We don't go any further, right? And if we keep pushing on fentanyl, we can move into more dangerous forms of fentanyl, right? It has a, the, 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 the range of potencies in the fentanyl class are three logs, right? You have things that feel an awful lot like heroin, you have things, the mother chemical fentanyl, which is 40 times as potent as heroin, and then you have carfentanil, which is 300 times as potent as, as, as heroin, right? And then there are things that are worse than fentanyl than carfentanil, right? Even more potent than that. So we've reached a level of absurdity. We need more rational drug policies. Let's continue this conversation. Okay, um, so I wanted to ask Will Miller, we're at least, told that some users prefer fentanyl, some users are seeking out fentanyl, and you've witnessed firsthand the effects of illicit fentanyl's takeover of parts of the market in Baltimore. And I guess I just want to ask, like, do you see users seeking out and wanting fentanyl, and do they even have a choice? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, first, I want to start by saying that when we talk about this subject, it's a lot of hurt in the room. It's a lot of pain in the room. So it's not nothing directly to anyone, per se, 
but it's about our experience. This is gonna be about my experience. And in Baltimore City, people are seeking fentanyl because that's all it is to give us. Um, they moved the crack aside and now it's fentanyl. So I set my wallet up here. There's no money in here, so y'all can have it. But I set my wallet up here because we know that it's not gonna stop coming in, as Dan said. So we came up with a thing for um, IV drug users first. And most of my, our, my members, our members right here, we came up with it and we had a song, right? And it was like, go slow, go slow, go slow. 20 seconds saved. So now we, we have to realize that people are seeking it out. How can we do best practices? How can we teach them about the analogs, as Lindsay was talking about, is it compacted into it? I'm learning all these things, and as we, as experienced people that sold heroin, we can't separate it enough with those, that one analog that will kill that person. And it's getting potent and potent, and that's all it is out there now. Heroin is not even on the market. I mean, it's on the market, but no one want heroin because it's a different feeling. And in Baltimore City, we came up with this through um, uh, Public Health School, uh, John Hopkins Public Health School, Bloomberg, uh, and we created this slogan. So y'all can check this out, 20secondsays.org, and it's about messaging. It's about messaging, and that's what we do now when we engage, as long as all the other advocacy things that we do also. So, I think we all agree here that it is a, a it is a supply side problem. Fentanyl is a phenomenon of a poison supply, and this is for for anyone to take a stab at. And and, and Dan sort of already knocked down this question, but is there any proper role for supply side enforcement in the, in this issue? And then maybe Jasmine, you, you you can take a stab at this because you're in D.C. where all the think tanks and the, and the policy people are, how are they thinking about even solving this problem? So, uh, hi everybody, I'm not Michael Collins, but he's my dear friend and colleague, uh, but I'm happy to be here because this too is my movement, and uh, so I'm glad to be on this panel because I've done this before, I've literally done this before. I worked uh, in DC when I was at the Drug Policy Alliance for many, many years, to try to eliminate, but ultimately only reform, the crack powder disparity. So we have done this. We have set policies based on one drug, and they have caused irreparable harm, these policies, not the drugs, to communities, especially my community, the black community, and we can't, we couldn't afford it then, but part of the problem that we don't have solutions for now is because of what we did then, and that is pegging our drug policies to the drug du jour, the, the thing that's on the market right then. In the 80s, it was uh, cocaine. In the 80s and 90s, it was cocaine, crack cocaine. In the aughts, it was methamphetamine. Now, it, in the, you know, sort of in the prescription, and now it's heroin and fentanyl. And so the same thing we do every decade is try to figure out how to deal with that issue and not really how to think about what it means to have a public health response to drug use and the drug use spectrum from normal healthy drug use, recreational drug use, choices to alter consciousness in responsible ways, 
to problematic, chaotic drug use, which the UN only estimates 5% of the, of the world population to be problematic, chaotic drug users. In the United States, however, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the prisoners of the world. And so we either have the world's worst people or we're doing it wrong. And we have done it wrong decade after decade. And I really, if you don't leave here with anything from this panel, although this is a banging panel, you should start changing your language to say the drug war has almost gone on for 50 years now. It was started in 1971. I mean, I have been working on this long enough to celebrate, or not celebrate, but acknowledge different like anniversaries of the continuation of these failed policies that have literally caused death and disappearance for whole swaths of people, right? And for years and years and years. So what I see in Washington DC, again, is more of the same. So you guys all heard that there was a big opioids package that just got passed. And I have to tell you, at Human Rights Watch, I, I we reviewed, my colleague Megan, I think is in the room, um, we look at, look at all of this and we analyze this and you know, for us, we could only be neutral on the bill because it's kind of good, right? Like it's more money for treatment, although it's not exactly the treatment that we think should be available because it's not all evidence-based treatment, it's, all not, it's not all culturally competent treatment, and it's certainly not all harm reduction-based treatment, right? But it did do a huge thing that it, in that it allows now for the coverage of medication-assisted therapy through insurance billing, which you could use to only get medication-assisted therapy for pain management, not for actual substance abuse tapering down or, or um, maintenance, right? And so this is gonna be a huge game changer, I think. But the provision that Michael and I ended up fighting every day for weeks with Republican and Democratic leadership in the Judiciary Committees in both the Senate and the House, and with the leadership, Democratic leadership in the House and Senate, we don't really have that much access to the Republican leadership except through some of our Republican friends who actually are good advocates with us on this issue. But we spent, months and weeks, many of you I'm sure your organization signed on to letters and weighed in on this because there were enhancements included in this bill to jack up penalties for fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. And, you know, for us, it's a non-starter. Too many people are locked up, it's gotta stop. Every 25 seconds, Human Rights Watch and the ACLU in a joint report, uh, realize that every 25 seconds, someone in the United States is arrested for drug possession. Somebody can do the math. I probably should have this calculated because I say this on every panel and they're always 90 minutes. But we can have a calculation of how many people will have been arrested while we're up here talking about what the right thing to do is. And so, you know, we worked in a, in a, in a small coalition and put pressure every day we worked the media to get stories out all the time to try to blow this bill up because it wasn't in the spirit of the public health response that we had shifted towards 
in the last five years. And I have to say, whether it was the Obama administration, whether it was the white, kindler, gentler drug war, whether it was a combination of both, I'm good, I, I'm, I'm, I gotta get this out. Uh, like, it was a problem because we were now turning our, our back on the commitment that we made to pass the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, the CARA bill, with no penalties. It was the first drug policy bill, drug-related bill, that passed Congress with no penalties, no enforcement. The only engagement of the DOJ was for naloxone distribution and education for officers. So this really was a, 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 a departing from that bipartisan commitment and agreement. And so we really had to push hard not just the Republicans who had gone there, but the Democrats too. And this is why I will say, you know, obviously I work in a nonpartisan organization. Many of our organizations are all nonpartisan. And a lot of times people say, oh, well, you're aligned with the Democrats or they carry your water or they, listen, none of these people are our people, okay? The reality is they're still thinking 20 at best years ago. And you have to remember that it was at the exact moment in the AIDS epidemic that we learned syringes, sterile syringes would save lives. It was the exact moment that we learned that that they were criminalized, okay? And so we cannot rely on folks who have had this slow learning curve because there's a cost. There's a cost and we all pay it. And so that's my experience in DC around recent penalties and old penalties and thanks. Thank you. That's so I, I think what, what Jasmine, you were saying the, about language and how we talk about this. And with fentanyl, it is the baddest, scariest new drug out there. And if you stand next to it, you're liable to overdose. Like that is the extent to the fantastic properties that have been attributed to this drug. So, um, like, I, maybe Will, like, how do you engage people who are using this drug? What, what do you tell them about it? And then people who don't know anything about this stuff, how are we supposed to talk about what illicit fentanyl is? And how do we accurately say, like, yes, this is a, a dangerous drug and it's a problem, but it isn't, it isn't, it isn't causing overdoses in police who touch it, for example. Like, how do we talk first, about this? First, and first and foremost, it's not the it's not the fentanyl. It's the education of how we um, present it to the individuals that's using. Because drug users um, are individuals too. We engage. I mean, they're people. They're people first. Um, we get caught up in these word peers and things like that a lot. And our acronym stands for peers often well as and. Peers offer wellness, education, and resources, which we're going to switch up because we're people first. We're going to be people offer wellness, education, and resources. And how we engage with, we treat like human beings. How you knowing? What's your name? You know, first and foremost, that's the simplest thing. And secondly, because we on the ground, we get the information from the experts themselves that's not in this room or at this table. And I'm speaking for them right now. And I think I'm doing a good job of it, but they're yes. supposed to be at these tables. And that's that's one of the key ingredients to this movement. I'm not calling it an epidemic. It's been my problem for, what, 35 years? 
So it's not an epidemic, it's a problem in my neighborhood, but it's spread outside my neighborhood. I'll let Jasmine get on that part, but I'm gonna leave that um, So it's treating people like people first. Um, I just had a conversation with a person. Like if I'm talking to a person and that shirt is really dirty, really dirty, we can see that it's dirty. That conversation about that dirty shirt shouldn't come up unless that person says something about it. What, what do this person need? And it's education all the time. They let us know about the drug. They let us know that's not bad. We hear that word and want to jump over because it was on media. Put it out there where the officer like almost died. Yeah. That was some bullshit. So, just educate, educating, and for those that don't know, we we see we see things on television, the media, and hear, read about it, and some of the things are not evidence based. Some things not evidence based. So it's about um, the language, this evil, and I'm talking about the drug, the the, the people who's making a living on selling drugs. Also, they're not bad people. Because you know you have some bad people that sell drugs and some people that's not that bad they just got caught up little Bobby and Ryan. But it's about the education piece and putting uh, putting in perspective that it's it's not bad. It's again it's the messaging part of how do we get this message out for the individuals that's using that don't have the opportunity that I have right now to explain. Well, it's not bad. And um, we, we, can, we have resources, um, I like to use it. So if they're productive in using it, um, I think that we should, well, I'm gonna say, I think I should like support that person because that's, a, that's, that's, that's what's mostly needed is, is support. So I just wanna say just a few things that came to the top of my mind off of this a question. And the first is that fentanyl is actually a medicine. And I think it's very important for us to not perpetuate this negative um, perception of fentanyl. Not that there aren't problems with fentanyl also. But, you know, I've seen this happen in two ways. One is in the cannabis space and around marijuana. And so we brought a lot of people to the table around CBDs. And CBDs are very important. They provide so much relief for so many different conditions. But one of the problems with CBD oil is that people come to it because they don't want people to get high. And I don't want people to not be able to get high. So it's like, it has to be part of it, not like instead of. And the other thing that I think about too, when I think about fentanyl, when I think about access to medicine and, um, you know, I think about the extreme disparities in access to adequate pain management and treatment that people of color and women experience. Because literally there are studies that show we are all tougher, whatever that means. People, I'm sorry, not that they show we're tougher, that it, they show people think we're tougher. And so we don't need what we really need. And I've seen this play out in a lot of ways. I suffer from chronic pain and 
you know, I suffer from, you know, addiction in my family, and I'm, you know, careful and thoughtful about, like, what I take, what I get, what I, you know, I have a sensitive stomach, so I can't actually enjoy pills, but anyway, that's a different story. That's not about this panel. So, but, but I have seen people denied pain medication. My dad was dying, and because he had had a 30-plus-year heroin addiction, he could not actually get the care and comfort dose of medication for him that someone who had that tolerance, right? Because the same, the same thing that's care and comfort for me, not using it is different for somebody who has a tolerance. In his last moments, until, you know, until, unless you got a good nurse on that shift or a good, you know, like, who's willing to sort of sign it or do whatever. And so, you know, we see these problems. And so one of the things that I want to be cautious about is, like, I don't want to get caught up in us being like, oh, fentanyl, it's so bad. What are we going to do? We know what we can do. We have test strips. We need to get them out. We need to make sure people aren't criminalized and that, you know, there are other protective factors in place for people, stable housing, access to health care, you know, grocery stores in their neighborhoods. I mean, there are other vital things that we need to do before we're thinking about, like, enforcement on fentanyl, again, in these 10 barrels, that it's like finding a needle in a haystack. So, um, I think I'll just that. Because <laughs> I'm not really supposed to be on this panel, so this stuff is, like, just coming to me, so. You have to deal with it. Bouncing off of test strips, Dan, I wanted to ask you, there seems to be a riff growing. So SAMHSA put out a blog saying, you know, we have better things to do than using test strips. Your research and lots of other research seems to contradict that. Can you talk about why the government put out that uh, response and, and what your research shows contradicting it? Yeah, so, you know, I agree that so fear is driving a lot of this, right? So people are acting badly, people in power, because they're afraid. And I see it, I go to some of these meetings and I can see the fear. They want to do something. Let's do something. And sometimes that leads to action that is um, uh, unreasonable, irresponsible, uh, increasing penalties for uh, low-level dealing and all that stuff. Um, the fentanyl test strip, what I try to remind any, any person of power that I'm in front of is that if you don't help us, we're gonna help ourselves, right? Harm reduction is that, is people helping each other, helping themselves with strategies to stay alive, right? So the fentanyl test strips, $1 each, 50 cents, you buy them in bulk, if you can get them donated, um, um, if you can find, find some, somebody, some organization with some money that gives it to you for free. Um, we get them, we're using them because the larger issue of drug knowledge and drug surveillance is not being given to us. Why don't I know what drugs are in Baltimore last week? What mixes, what potencies, what purities, how much of it's heroin, how much of it's fentanyl, when did acetylfentanyl come in, when did parafluorofentanyl go out, right? Why don't I know that information transparently so that I, as a user, can make a rational decision about what product I want to use, so, or that I can avoid it, or that I can move the market 
better to the old stuff, to the raw, to the to the original heroin, the product that everyone really liked. Uh, you know, not this fentanyl crap. Um, sorry, I have an opinion about fentanyl. I know some people like it. Um, <laughs> but my point is that the fentanyl trust strips come in because because we're feisty and we need them and we're trying our best to keep ourselves and our colleagues and our friends and our lovers safe, right? It's not the end all and be all, right? There's lots of limitations to those silly little strips, okay? But if that's what we got now, we gotta do it. And if the head of SAMHSA doesn't like it, I don't care. You can't put it in your grant, and you're not going to get money to do research. So this goes back to needle exchange, okay? Why do we have bad evidence for whether needle exchange works or not? Because it wasn't funded in the early days, right? Why do we have bad evidence as to whether naloxone works? Why do we have to wait 15 years to find out whether naloxone distribution works? Because they weren't funded in the early days. So that is the problem with Sam's is saying no to this. Um, but, welcome. I mean, they are funded to study the harms of drugs, not like the science of drugs. And I'm fine that SAMHSA doesn't want to pay for fentanyl strips. They do have other things they should pay for, like SIFs, like, you know, like, you know, needle exchanges, like that, you know, there's, they, they, they're right, they got a plate, but they need to do something and they're not doing enough. So the message, the message to Claude again, and I want to, sorry, but with syringes, if we come up with, it, we it came up in Baltimore City, it was like, okay, all right, we have syringes. Y'all, y'all want people to get high? No, that's not, that's not it. We send a message with it though: your kids won't be getting stuck accidentally by needles, things like that. And with the test strips, for me and what I present all the time to my organization, it's a prevention tool. Violence prevention. Again, people want fentanyl in Baltimore City, and I'm just talking about Baltimore City, that's what they want. So if they're able to test their substance and know it's what they want or it's not what they want, they're able to give it back, and that's that's like, we have a lot of violence going on in Baltimore City. Overdoses more than the, the um, murder rate in Baltimore City. But it's a prevention, for me, I'm giving them a different message, and it's a prevention tool, violence prevention, where though this is what the fuck I want, you ain't give it to me, I'm gonna go get that, what we said, but I'm gonna get that joint and I'll come back and I'm gonna get you. And they don't see it that way, so that's us. We need to do this messaging in that way because it is a violent prevention to me. Again, I'm speaking about me. It is a violent prevention because you want what you want when you want it. I was just gonna uh, go a little bit deeper on one of the things that Dan said, um, which is um, to what extent we don't know what is in the market and why don't we know that. And I wanna point the finger um, at one easy target, which is law enforcement. Um, law enforcement seizes our drugs, they have them, they know what's in them, um, and they do not share that data. Um, and I'll use Ohio as an example where a recent researcher was actually able to collaborate with law enforcement to get all of their seized drugs, test them, and figure out what was happening. And found out that in fact, um, despite the narrative otherwise, Ohio does not have a larger heroin addiction problem. They have a carfentanil problem. They are dying of carfentanil. And we don't know this until two 
three years later because law enforcement has been sitting on all of the samples. So it just, I mean, this is going to require um, efforts across um, agencies, across departments, um, in order to get a handle on what is in our supply so we can actually provide that real-time education um, so that people can keep themselves safe. And, and, and speaking on that, I just happen to be in, in a circle with of I can get this information, but us that's on the ground, the data, and all these studies that are being done, it needs to be something done about that way that we can get this data on the street and give it to the simplify, not going online, simplify, break it down like ABC. Because I can get the data, but I don't understand the shit all the time. I, I, I don't. But we need the data to put on the street so we can go to Capitol Hill. We can, we, we Lizzie and Jasmine can bring people that use drugs and it'd be more, it'd be more effective instead of some white people going up there speaking for us. Whereas though that these are not the people that sit at the table and then they, then they get the, they get the heat. It's too hot for them in the kitchen. And they just trying to be our allies and help us out. But this data, and I always talk about that, we need a workshop that simplifies. We can take this shit to the street. We can give it to the people that's using drugs. And they can be like, oh, this is what's going on? This, oh, this shit ain't right. That ain't right because it's a lot of bad data out there. That's true. And I think the thing that Will was talking about in his previous remarks, you know, about uh, fentanyl test strips being used as violence prevention is real because the reality of prohibition is that there are no mechanisms in place for buyers, uh, warehousers, middlemen, uh, transporters, shippers, and uh, business owners to negotiate problems throughout that chain. Like, if I have a problem with my toilet paper, I'm gonna return it or something, right? Like, you know, if I have a problem, I usually use a toilet paper about buying in bulk, Oh, so that was a bad one, but anyway, about buying drugs in bulk and getting heavier charges. But you know what I'm saying? I don't like my. Yeah, it's like you just don't, you know, have those opportunities for saying like, yo, this was not the shit I bought. You know, like you cheated me. Like I'm trying to get right, and so you know, I think that there's there are really real problems with the prohibition in and of itself, and that's why we really need to move to a decriminalization, legalization, regulation, medicalization, uh, multi-pronged approach for many of these different drugs because we are really in a space now, you say people want fentanyl in Baltimore. I guess so because Baltimore has been fucked up for a long time. I would want the next generation too. Like, I'm just saying, like, you know, people evolve, drug use evolves. And the problems of the world have evolved. And we're not taking any of that into account unless you're like, apologies, hillbilly elegy, and like, oh, there's an explanation for your economic, you know, downtrodden mixed with your prescription and your pain and your, you know, illicit drug use. And I'm really not trying to simplify. I know that probably sounded rude, that's not what I mean. But it's like, hello, my family were slaves for presidents in the United States. My dad grew up in a segregated school. Like, let's talk about economic downtrodden, illegitimate access to markets and education and the American dream. So like, I get it, but 
So the next topic sort of hits exactly on that, which is drug-induced homicide. And so Lindsay has authored a, a gigantic and very useful report yeah. for everybody about drug-induced drug homicide. For those of you who don't know, basically, Lindsay and I are using heroin together. I give her a bag, she overdoses and dies. I'm on the hook for murder, for manslaughter. And we're friends, we used together. These are the kinds of cases that are, and Lindsay can speak to this, rising and are becoming the norm. And most disturbingly, it's often a white user and a quote, black dealer. And again, black people are bearing the brunt of the racist drug war policies and when white when white people use we have a disease and we need treatment when black people use they are criminals and that's what is baked into this law so if you want to take it off sure um, so we were able to track um, news media mentions of individual prosecutions over a period of five years and we use this as a proxy for actual prosecutions because we can't really track those many states have specific drug-induced homicide laws but others are just charging um, these types of cases through murder through manslaughter so there's no way to distinguish between like vehicular homicide and drug-induced homicide for instance um, but what we saw is a 300% increase in these charges from 2011 to 2016 in some states, particularly the Midwest, Northeast, where fentanyl um, is more present, um, those chunks were even more substantial. Talking about like literally zero cases um, in 2011 to 161 cases. Again, these are only cases that actually make it to the media, so this is a real undercount of what is actually happening, but it provides a really good indicator of what the trends are um, with respect to this particular charge. As Zach mentioned, I mean, to me, these charges just embody absolutely everything that is wrong with the war on drugs, uh, perpetuate the harms of criminalization um, to a really extreme extent. So um, looking, for instance, at the underlying racial dynamics, um, certainly, I mean, I think that um, we haven't moved away from the drug war. I don't think that there's been a kinder, gentler drug war. I think our primary response has still been to enforce and incarcerate. Um, but there is absolutely no doubt that the rhetoric has changed because white people are affected, right? There's no doubt about that. Um, and we see that play out in the context of drug-induced homicide because the white users are deserving of sympathy, deserving of compassion, deserving of treatment instead of incarceration. Um, but what we see is a lot of, well, oftentimes it's explicit. You look at um, Governor LePage um, oh, okay. out of Maine, and he's saying, you know, we've got guys named D-Money, Shorty, coming into our state from Brooklyn, um, selling drugs, impregnating our women. I mean, it goes back, you know, this is like language we've heard from hundreds of years ago, and it's being used in present day. But you also hear um, racially coded language around pushers, right, um, dealers, um, purveyors, um, which conjures up a certain image in people's mind of um, the person on the street corner in urban black America. That's what it conjures up. And we actually see it play out in reality. So in one case, for instance, one county, McHenry County in Illinois, 98% white, less than 1% black, rural, suburban county, borders on Chicago. Um, they have gone into Chicago, arrested four black men for murder, for selling drugs that resulted in overdose deaths, have never set foot in this white county. That's 35% of their drug-induced homicide charges 
One particular man, James McSlender, who we went and visited, talked to at length, um, received a sentence 55% higher than any other person, sentenced by an all-white jury, sitting in federal prison 28 years. Um, four, give me selling drugs to a boyfriend whose girlfriend was sitting in the car. The boyfriend then shared the drugs with the girlfriend. She overdosed. Boyfriend got probation. White boyfriend got probation. Um, this is an anecdote, obviously, but this is indicative of what's happening. In Hennepin County, Minnesota, 72% of the cases against black defendants, 13% black population. Um, if you go to Health and Justice website, they are doing some data collection currently. Um, you have, that's on enforcement. If you go to the actual sentencing side, the sentencing is showing that on average people of color are getting around a nine-year sentence. Um, white folks are getting around five years, 5.5 years. Um, but there are other ways in which this is just incredibly problematic. I mean, it completely undermines a public health approach. So we have 40 states and the District of Columbia that have passed Good Samaritan laws. No one gives a shit about getting immunity for simple possession if they're gonna be charged with murder. So people are not calling 911. That's just what it is. Um, there was a study out of Maryland on the implementation of their Good Samaritan law. It was not even a question unprompted, people said they were not calling 911 because they were scared of being charged for murder. Not being asked, totally unprompted. This means that it is being, it is filtering through the channels and it is getting down to the end user that they're gonna be charged with murder. Treating overdose scenes as crime scenes. Um, these, so we're undermining all of the efforts that we put into this public health approach when we implement, you know, when people are prosecuted uh, for drug-induced homicide. Um, I, I love saying this because I feel like it's just so true. It's like literally the only behavior that is deterred by drug-induced homicide is calling 911. No other behavior is deterred. Their research shows nothing happens. There's a replacement effect. One other seller pops up when that person goes to jail. It doesn't impact sales, doesn't impact use, doesn't impact overdose, and instead creates just this, it really just creates a lot of tragedy in its wake, right? You now have another parent that's lost a son or a daughter. Not to overdose, but now they're sitting in jail, potentially for the rest of life. When they get out, their life is not going to be the same. How do we get these laws off the books? Vote them out. I mean, these are bad know, laws. It's really hard because you have allies like Hakeem Jeffries in New York and Cedric Richmond in Louisiana who are on Judiciary Committee and are the new young like black leaders on Judiciary Committee, and then they um, they sell out sentencing reform for bullshit prison-like programming that doesn't exist because of many, many reasons that we've articulated to them before. And so it's really hard because the answer isn't just to let the old ones die. Like, um, you know, it's funny because, it's only funny because it's true, and this is gonna be so wonky that I don't know if anybody's gonna get it, but Orrin Hatch, the senator from Utah, okay, there's some head nods, he's a longtime drug warrior, like blah, 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 whatever. Um, you know how there was this joke this weekend about Lindsey Graham and the DNA tests, and anyway, I don't know. So or there was this whole GOP thing about like DNA tests. And um, first of all, keep your DNA. You can't trust people with, why would you give away, anyway, that's a different <laughs> But Orrin Hatch had a whole thing where he was like, oh, he was like fake reading like some results. And then they showed a paper like, oh, you're part T-Rex. And, and then like, 
87% other dinosaur or whatever. And they thought it was funny, right? And I'm like, no, you are dinosaurs. Like, you're old. Stop it. It's a different era. Like, we're literally in a new century. Like, it's a new, we're, okay. Like, we're, we're almost... 20% into a new century, a fifth into a new century, and we're, here we are doing the same shit. And we used to have prescription heroin in the early 1900s and 1930s and 20s and stuff. We had it, it was effective. It was effective for pain management, it was effective for people who were addicted. Hair, all of this stuff was in every product, hair cream, cough syrup, everything, right? Coca, heroin, all of it. We had, we knew what we were doing with it, but then some crazos got it, you know, being their bonnet. And the reality is, and I don't know if you've read Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Screen, but it's really great because it documents like how Anslinger got so crazy. Like he, okay, just like there's another conference happening maybe right now about recovery that's all like 12 step and anti-harm reduction and all that, right, right? Like there are people like us who have these tragedies in our family and we come here. And there are people who have these tragedies, tragedies and they go there, right? And he was one of those people because his mom had a heroin problem from pain or something like that. So here you have this guy that's like, I'm gonna eradicate the scourge across the land. But the whole time he was giving Joe McCarthy, the congressman who like led the Red Scare and accused everyone of being a fucking communist, was giving him basically prescription heroin the whole time. Because white people. <laughs> it, it's really always her to call Jasmine. She's like up here and it's like, I gotta bring it back down to. Uh, what I was gonna say is, yes, both them out. But I think the thing that is honestly so challenging and so scary about the moment that we're in right now with the criminalization and the drug induced homicides and the fentanyl mandatory minimums is that, and Jasmine actually mentioned this earlier, but it's like even progressive people and even in progressive states you're still seeing it. So Rhode Island, for instance, is like held up as like a model of um, good public health-based drug policy, has done a lot of amazing things great, literally last session passed a drug-induced homicide law. And I think that that initially was minimum life in prison, um, which we were able to get down. But that was how it was drafted initially. Um, so even in these progressive places, you see these really um, regressive strategies. And I think that one thing that underlies it, obviously first stigma, and that goes without saying, but we gotta address the stigma. But then we really, we have to give it this notion of the stick, that there like has to be the stick along with the public health, along with the harm, like sure, harm reduction, sure, treatment, but also the stick, also incarceration. And I just, we have to be able to start separating those in the minds of people who are making the decisions because until we do, I mean, again, it's like, it doesn't matter how much of this good stuff that we get because it's all undermined by the criminalization. So just separating those And I'll just out. say one thing too, that's a strategy to match that is, I'm getting, okay, is that, you know, when you have a state that does do good stuff, you have to make sure that their congressional representatives echo that and so like, even though Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is on Judiciary Committee in Washington, D.C., he's the co-sponsor of the less good bill that doesn't actually address sentencing reform. 
So he's not even in step with what's happening in the state. Excuse me. He's just not in step. And so there's a there's a level of um, consistency and um, repetitiveness that we have to enforce. It's not enough for somebody to change a law. It, we have to stay on it. We have to make sure that law gets changed and implemented correctly, right? And then we also have to make sure that that same thing that they re realized and decided and acted from is like their baseline now, right? That it's not like back to where they were before for the next issue that comes across our desk, the next bill that comes across our desk. It's about making them stay where they are. And a lot of our work really is about it's it's because it's so defense related so much um we're always playing whack-a-mole right like trying to do one thing just like they're doing with the drug war right like we're trying to fat one thing down but then all these other bills are coming up but for us you know a lot of our work depends on literally just working when the broken clock is right twice a day like just catching them when they can be right on the thing that you need them to be right about but it is about that consistently I learned a little bit about the, uh, the laws and how they, how they put them in place. And those that deal with the politic things like that, uh, I, I'm learning, still learning. You gotta watch how they put it in there because they make it look really good and then it'll be shitting in it. Like, like, oh, we can pass this law, but, like everything had the but, somebody told me it's bullshit. <laughs> And I want to talk about how we can, like in Maryland, we can save money. Because we hired, probably 18 months ago, almost two years ago, five detectives to investigate fentanyl overdoses, fatalities, um, non-fatal, and it become a crime scene. Um, those that, in different, different cities, that had these counties that separated, well, I'm gonna say Baltimore County, um, Randall County, things like that. They had a jurisdiction. If they suspect that it's an overdose in Baltimore City, I mean, it, it was a dealer, it's a dealer in Baltimore City, they can come and lock individuals up in Baltimore City. And it's not their jurisdiction. Our government thinks it's a brilliant idea. The media just blowing it up. and. They had an opioid crisis type thing on Channel 13 News, and me and my colleague Daryl Burrell was right there. And we went to talk to this guy, <laughs> I'm gonna say guy, in Baltimore County, and we was trying to you know, help out what was going on in Baltimore County because Baltimore County numbers is Baltimore City numbers because that's where people come to get the good stuff. And as soon as we said something about people that use drugs, that's affiliated with us, it was a direct turn on. And now he uses everything that we say, how we implement our things, and he used that and make himself look good through the media. So again, all these laws and implemented things for officers to do certain work, we could be putting that with the youth, building their houses up in Baltimore City, a row house. Um, it's a whole bunch of things that we can be doing with that money instead of paying these. We can be paying people that use drugs to actually help out with this, they call it crisis, our problem. When I mean our problem, I'm talking about mine, the city I grew up in, and East Baltimore, West Baltimore, South Baltimore, I can go on and on about it. And 
and that's what we can be using this money on. They put it on us to advocate for that. So we've been talking about laws and, and sentencing. Um, Dan, I wanted to ask you about pre-arrest diversion and law enforcement assisted diversion. So these are gaining steam. Are they, is the rhetoric meeting the action? And then this is where people who are arrested or caught with, with drugs, personal amounts for use, they don't go to jail. Should sure. go to jail. Yes. Thanks for asking the question. I'm, I'm not certainly not an expert in this area. I wish someone like you know, uh, you, you, you know, Leo Valesky or someone else uh, here. But let me just say that um, uh, I've been privileged to to hear top level law enforcement brag about these things. So we're really in this sort of like divergent conversation where you know federal leadership is talking about how we're not going to risk our way out of this problem. We are going to find folks who are going to use our public safety function, which is what police could be doing, um, help to help people as patients. How do we partner with you, me, public health, you know, doctor-like people, to get people into care, right? So then our problem is do we have enough slots, do we have enough money, do we have enough treatment uh, venues, do we have enough creativity and love and compassion to help people? But police want to be on our side. Right? And these are top-level conversations that are going on. But then how do they translate to the ground? Like, you know, are, is, this, is it really just rhetoric, right? Is it really just talk, 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 talk? And on the ground, you then have the beat folks who are just going to do what they're going to do, right? And so that's, and I don't know the answer there. I'm cynical and I'm suspicious, but... Uh, Okay, so law enforcement assisted diversion is what I like to call very 1990s. I did in fact work at the Drug Policy Alliance when LEAD was new on the scene and it was great. That was about 15 years ago. So the reality is we just need more. I'm not saying that LEAD shouldn't be happening, that people shouldn't be getting diverted, people should not be in the criminal justice system. But the reality is we don't need the police to do it. We need to just invest in our communities for fuck's sake from the front, okay? And the reality that we can trust like four officers in one specialized unit while the rest of that fucking police department is shooting us and getting away with it is a problem. We cannot trust them. Police are the public health crisis in our community. Like we cannot trust them with our lives because we cannot trust them with our lives. So this, this notion that lead is the answer is just so false because if the services are available that then they're hands off pointing you towards, then they just don't need to be involved at all. There's no, it, it just is unnecessary. And these like other types of riffs off of LEAD that don't even have the harm reduction component because at least LEAD does acknowledge and, and is supposed to as, as other places come on board with their own programs, have this fidelity to a harm reduction based model, meeting before they're at not abstinence-based, allowing people to have, you know, continue drug use, you know, as long as they don't get other back worse charges. And it's this like stick thing that it's like, well, unless you get other charges or what, but like if I live in my community, I'm gonna get charges. The police are in my community specifically to charge me with, with living in my, you know, so, so this notion that there's like this like, um, you know, 
like unbiased policing that can actually do this and provide the services that are really not even there and that are co-opted from being able to say like, oh, I'm ready in my community and I want services, but like, oh, you're on the wait list because these other programs through the criminal justice system have the like priority on the beds or the spaces or whatever. Like it's a problem. And let, let me tell you about drug courts. They are a problem. You cannot determine somebody has a health condition and then only deal with it in the criminal justice system. You cannot determine somebody has a health condition and then punishment punish them for the manifestations of that health condition. I can't tell you how many studies have shown coercive treatment doesn't work. It works maybe, if you're lucky, half the time. So listen, I, I like to gamble. I'm not gambling on that, that's shitty odds. So like the reality, you know, a new meta study was just released this week that showed coerced, coerced treatment doesn't even work a majority of the time. So why are we investing in this when we know that harm reduction can save lives and bring people to health along a spectrum in different ways, but that it's the other things that we need. We need economic investments, we need stable housing, we'll say, I mean, like these are the things that we actually need for people to be healthy, whole, and to be able to live vibrantly in a community, right? Like, I mean, that's what it's about, and so yes, we also want public safety, if you can believe it. Like, but we don't think that the police are actually the way to provide that because they don't value our safety. So, so to rely on, you know, there's this saying by Audrey Lord, like you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, right? We have to use some of those and then we have to be revolutionary, we have to be crime reductionist. We have to do the work to liberate and save our people. And so we are doing that and we have to do it pushing the establishment to get there as well, but we're not gonna just let, you know, you just can't let people die in the meantime. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're really leaning on is that these changes are incremental, but they're often not positioned that way. Right. They're often positioned as the solution rather than a step toward the actual solution. And I think that's a really important distinction, particularly as we look to implement um, novel ways to reduce overdose deaths. So for instance, like it is critically important that people have access to methadone and buprenorphine when they are in jail and prison. But you do risk creating a situation in which people's access to the best care is in jail and prison, right? So while you are pushing that, because we know it will significantly reduce overdose deaths, we have to be doing the community work. Yeah. We have to be doing, we have to be shoring up into the community. Quite frankly, methadone and buprenorphine in jail doesn't mean anything if when you get out, you don't have a community no. provider to continue it, right? Um, so, you know, they're often, you know, it's like, and I feel like this is kind of a hot topic now, even among elected officials are like, great, let's get it into the jails and prisons. Still, no one is talking about the community. No one is talking about the community. And so we just have to keep in mind that, and same with lead, like there are good, things about leave, but fundamentally, should your access to the healthcare system be for the police? No, it's ridiculous, it's utterly absurd that your access to healthcare would be mediated through the police. Um, but, you know, that's better than just, you know, throwing a, you know, locking them up and throwing away the key. Um, but it's incremental, and we have to recognize that it's incremental and actually make sure that we're positioning this as part of that ultimate solution of decriminalization, regulation, medicalization, as Jasmine was talking about earlier. Would you ever ask a cop for nutritional advice? <laughs> I mean, I love donuts, so like, so I'd, I'd be like, I cool. Only, that I was only fair. ask police for directions because I know in that interaction they're not arresting someone. True. 
So I just want to engage. We have about 20 minutes left, roughly. And do people have questions? Should we open it up for Q&A? Yeah. OK. Go ahead. Are there mics out there? I can kind of just oh, walk okay. around. He's going to get one for us. Oh. Okay. Thank you. Can somebody Oprah for us? Is there a DJ? Queen, can you come Oprah for us? Can you get this mic? For Oh, it's not the DBA conference. I'm sorry. It's an HRC conference. My bad. Is there an HRC? <laughs> okay, well, whatever. It's a movement. We're all together. I'm sorry. My bad. Thank you. Are, are you okay walking around? Thank you. Thanks. Hello? Yeah. Yeah. You get too, com too comfortable out there. Hello, everyone. Steve, be more power. Uh, I have more of a statement I'd like to make. That's why you told me I think that um, Baltimore has a unique position as reference to the fentanyl and a few other cities that I can't name right off the top. But we see what's coming right. as far as future-wise and to all the other states that's represented here today. We see what y'all going to get. And as Will said earlier, people are not just going to fentanyl over heroin. They prefer it, they run into it, they want it, they seeking it, and they don't want anything else. Fentanyl in Baltimore is, uh, let's say, what crack was to cocaine. If heroin was a pretty little poodle that you see running around in the front yard, you know, barking or whatever, then fentanyl is a big, mean, vicious pit bull that you don't want to go nowhere near. But it's actually coming near you. It's coming near everywhere. It's, it's just spread. And I was telling someone earlier that the fight that we have to use against that is the fight with no gloves. Because fentanyl, sure, they don't have any gloves on the way it's knocking people the fuck out. You understand what I'm saying? So our fight will have to be so much more aggressive. No gloves. You can't just sit back and think it away. Like I said, if those of you can go back in time and remember what crack did to cocaine, it destroyed the country, crumbled neighborhoods, broke up families, schools, people can go on and on. This is what fentanyl is doing all over again in Baltimore and small towns everywhere. And it's spread to little counties, little white areas, this and that. Thank you. Ohio, right here. Yes, one issue one in Ohio. Hello, everybody. I know I'm in a big mouth, so excuse me, but I don't have long to be here, and I got a lot to say because people are dying where I come from. And so we talk about the crack epidemic. I spent three years in the cave addicted to crack cocaine in the 90s. And we were crack babies and super predators and we were doing the same damn thing again. And so I came home from incarceration in 1995. George Bush was president, George W. And he wrote a Second Chance Act and said I had a second opportunity to success. I read that damn thing. And I'm the man in mind. And so since then, and I just need to explain myself because we talking about folks dying. 
And folks get locked up and put in a cage, and we have to understand the analysis of extraction of labor, and they get rich, and it's an industrial complex. And I ain't gonna preach because I might. But my question, so my mayor, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. We got issue one on the ballot. Vote yes on issue one if you're from Ohio, because we ain't playing. And I watched them, and I, I'm just gonna be long with it. I'm sorry, baby, and I hold my own mic. <laughs> Ohio, and I have no disrespect, because I love you, my sister. Ohio is facing an epidemic of all this we talk about in all these rooms. But I sought out this one because, well, so during the crack epidemic, all y'all need, I have a question. My family, my father was a pimp and my mother was a booster. I wrote two books about my story, read them. If you want to know about what it's like to be in a cage, pieces of booster story, becoming terror, my books, and I ain't trying to sell books, I'm trying to save some lives. And so when we were out there selling crack cocaine, black folks didn't kill each other. We love us. And so we didn't kill each other. Where I came from, if somebody died from something they brought from my people, the gangster was rolling to see why you killing folks. We don't kill each other, we love each other. And so all of this must be rooted in the analysis of love first, because I love you, and I care that you're here. And so my mayor appointed me, and I'm, my question is, I have sat in a room in a year much like this with people in systems and research moves to practice. And they don't ever move the dollars they use on the research to the practice of saving lives. And so my question is, in regard to lead and all that stuff, I was funded under the Obama administration to do gun violence in Chicago, watching folks die. And violence must be a focus of all of this in the racial analysis. And so I don't understand the coercion my sister and I were talking about. It. What is valuable in lead? What is valuable in all these approaches that we allow the police to lead? because they don't come in my neighborhood the way they come in yours. And they kill us. They kill us. And so I don't understand, because I am sitting in the room right now as a commissioner on police. We made a demand and we said right now you're gonna stop killing us after black lives do matter. And so I sit in their room and I listen to their good talk because they are ever learning coming to the understanding of my truth. And so I don't know I'm, I'm, that my question to anyone that's willing to answer anyone here, and I'm gonna be here. Because I wanna get in the right relationship that we stop dying. That black folks stop. Anything you measure, I could be in any conference. Disproportionately, we die. Does anybody wanna take that up? I mean, I think I, I think I, I mean, we've been speaking to each other, so it's, you know, it's like, you know, since yesterday and all that. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I think you've reiterated some of the things that I've said. I think you shared some things with the group because I think the reality is it's very hard to figure out local strategies with police. And there are places where it has worked. It's, you know, like that is not to say that it cannot work, but it's very difficult work. And the problem is a lot of times the work is with individuals and it isn't systemic. Right? And so it doesn't have that transformative kind of impact that you really hope that it has to make that, that generational change. And that's why I, I also mentioned, you know, it's the commitment. It's the, it's the not forgetting that we've already moved to a new level when you're evaluating the next thing. Like if you've already agreed that something is wrong in one context, you have to just use that as your base. Like that's from, you know, that's then your orientation point moving forward and I think it's incumbent on folks like you to hold that like consistency to account 
Like, no, 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 remember when we did this thing because of that thing and we said this thing. Well, isn't that the same thing? So, you know, like that kind of, um, you know, it sounds very dumb and it's a lot of hard work and it really is about the relationships because, you know, you have to be able to go into these offices and give them the truth, but have them want to get their truth from you. You know, so it's hard to like read somebody and then them have to want to get read by you repeatedly. It's a very delicate kind of dance, so I do it with my winning smile. But, um, you know, there are other ways to do it. There are ways to do it through the media, so it's not you. There are ways to do it so that you can have other representatives, so you can make allies stand and hold that place, right? Like, where they have less risk for holding that space. And so it's about creatively thinking about how we hold people in power to account and where we get power to make them have to listen to us. I just want to respond to one thing that you said about people in the community loving each other um, and, and that example, because I think that's absolutely true. And I think the way um, that our system works actually fucks up their role as a harm reductionist. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at people who sell drugs, for instance, um, I looked at a number of cases where the person uh, you know, said to who they were selling to, hey, be careful, this is some strong shit. Um, you know, the last person that I sold to you overdosed, you really gotta watch your dose. And this was used by the prosecution as evidence that they were particularly culpable because they knew what they were selling and they sold it anyway. It's like, no, actually they're practicing harm reduction by alerting their client to the fact that they might want to go go slow, you know, as Will said. Um, right, so I mean, I think we need to uplift the ways that actually people who sell drugs um, are harm reductionists, can be harm reductionists, and some of the drug checking studies, they showed that drug checker, you know, people who sold drugs wanted to actually check their supply to see what they were selling. I mean, initially, I think Dan will echo, right, like, Initially, when fentanyl kind of hit the scene, a lot of people just didn't know what they were selling. I mean, we're totally unaware. You know, I think now people are starting to gain awareness and, in fact, want to know so they can actually provide and share that information to save the people in their community. They don't want their clients to. And it's important for us to understand that this is a poisoning, right? Because this isn't just in people who are seeking opiates on the market because that's their bag, right? This is showing up in other drugs, and I'd really hate to be a drug alarmist and be like, oh, other drugs, and oh, production is up. I really don't get into all of that, I don't. But this is a thing where I think, you know, this is a, you know, how you said this is an exact example of how, this is like the worst iteration of the drug war, because it's like, it's small, it's potent, it's like meant to do exactly what it's doing, and it's because the sourcing is coming from other countries, no one knows, and it's in other stuff. So it's showing up in Coke now, right? Like that's a poisoning. Like you usually, you know, shows up in a meth. Like you usually don't, like, I don't know, I was gonna make, anyway. Like you usually don't wanna mix like that unless you're actually specifically mixing, right? Like, I mean, like that's a thing. Like you don't wanna just get like surprised by that. So this is, this is what, what we mean about like, this is actually a poisoning. Again though, remember fentanyl is also a, Valid medication. Use some hospitals every day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Real quick, real quick. That's where the tech, um, fentanyl test strips come in at because it's in also 
sandy bars, because they compress that. All the pills, they're compressed. So that's the reason why it's important to have drug testing strips, because they are in that. And because it, and cocaine, it could be in cocaine, and it's just like that um, certain people that, we, we're not clean when we like compression of those things like that. So it could be residue of cocaine. The residue of, I mean, fentanyl and cocaine. So we gotta watch that too. And when they tell you that it's in marijuana, some people may know it as reefer. <laughs> it burns, it burns a different way. So like investigate some of the things you Let's just not look at it and say, oh yeah, you're right. And put it out there to other people and it'd be some you know, misinformation. Yeah, I have a concern uh, with all our focus on fentanyl that we're going to be forgetting the vast majority of drug poisoning deaths come from drug mixing. They come from mixing the standard opioids or heroin with a benzodiazepine or with or alcohol. alcohol. Yep. It's been that way yep. uh, from 50 years yep. ago. The Consumer Reports drug book was trying to warn us that drug mixing will kill you. Don't mix heroin and alcohol. Sure. And you know, and in the papers, you know, five years ago, it was all super pure heroin is coming out. Uh, heroin now is ten times purer in New York City than it was twenty years ago. And I looked at the data; it was stronger twenty years ago than it was today. It's, I mean, drug mixing is a huge problem, and we shouldn't forget it because we're concerned about fentanyl. Right. Even though fentanyl is a huge problem, and it is on the increase a great deal. Right. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. So. Um, it's the same is true for fentanyl-related overdose deaths, and that is they are drug-mixed deaths, right? It's fentanyl plus heroin, it's fentanyl plus a downer, and some of this stuff is coming in the powder, so, so the, the, the benzodiazepine, the Xanax-like powder is already in there, it's already in the mix. And so, um, uh, uh, thanks for bringing that, that back up. It is a good, uh, harm, it remains a good harm reduction educational moment to talk about um, uh, mixing. Uh, the other thing I want to bring in is, is that um, uh, a lot of people aren't aware that you know the heroin supply, even if we didn't have a fentanyl uh, overdose crisis, um, the heroin, uh, the new heroin that's coming in from Mexico, uh, brand new product coming, coming in around 2010, uh, very potent, refined, uh, likable to a, lot of, to, to a strong degree, but also uh, very potent and people um, are overdosing from that as well, and that's also going to the Northeast and the Midwest. So it's that new, um, uh, it's almost the color of your chairs there. It's a sort of um, sandy gray brown uh, heroin. Got time for a couple more. Hi, I'm from Pueblo, Colorado. We have a, um, first I want to say I'm not associated with law enforcement, so but I am going to give them a plug. We have a new program in Pueblo. Pueblo was not that long ago in the New York uh, Times as being one of the most violent cities in, in the United States. I'm Hispanic. The city is predominantly Hispanic. We have a lead program. When, when we've gotten some of those referrals, and, and it's really a gang town. It's really um, occupied by a lot of gangs, Hispanic gangs. And uh, the cops, the, the police hugged, you know, I, as I'm a criminologist, I get it. I get why we see the failing of them. Um, but the cops hugged when they got their first, uh, you know, arrest aversion. It was really supportive. I know we don't want to put this in the hands of law enforcement, but like you said, it is a step in the right direction and the right process. I think that the biggest uh, obstacle that we've had, and it's, you're getting a lot of head nods here because we're all on the same page, 
but I'll go out and do public speaking about harm reduction or substance abuse, and in the crowd, I get a lot of head nods too. Somebody said something in that first meeting, they said, um, you know, that uh, suffering was a precursor to being empathetic or sympathetic, right? And I think that's true. Our elected officials are the ones having the hardest time with, this, with the diversion or with anything, and the truth is, is I, my question to you is, how do we reach the general public? Because they're nodding their heads and slapping high five, and unless their families have been affected, um, they're not getting it. And we all know that when they go in the, vote, the voting booth, when no one's looking, they're voting the opposite of what, they're in these forums and they're shaking their heads, but when they get in the voting booth, they're voting against programs like LEAD. And so our elected officials, I mean, Looking at it from their point of view, they're like, this could be political suicide because even in, it, even in some of these cities that need it so bad, the general public is voting against it. So how do we get the general public that isn't affected or hasn't had a personal story, how do we get them to understand harm reduction? Because when the LEAD program came to our city, people were, were ready with pitchforks. They were like, what, you're gonna let drug addicts go? What if, they, what if you let them go and they kill somebody 10 minutes later and you had them? So I don't know, I don't know the answer to that, but I don't know, how do we get those people that when they get behind that voting booth, how do we get them to understand because they are gonna keep voting new people, they are gonna keep doing that. Well, I mean, anybody in this room could kill somebody at any given time, maybe people in this room have. And so I think that, you know, I get it, what your, your point, but you know, it's like not a way we can measure how we make decisions about liberty and humanity. It's just not, we can't what if those kinds of questions, those kinds of, um, you know, we have to deal with people where, there are, where, where they are when they're there, right? And so those electeds have to make those hard conversations and, and have those hard decisions. I think it's about uh, community conversations and education. I think it's about these relationships that you make. I think it's really about relationships with staffers. And um, I think it's also about, um, relentless pressure and it's it's just you know pressure burst pipes it's just thank you we got a question over here yeah kind of more of a comment a little bit but um well kind of question i'm curious with the how, how do we get how do we get lead programs that are not coercive that are not actively harming the people that they're purporting to be helping um, because that's really what I see over and over. Like, I mean, last time I needed to get help, you know, I, I didn't know where to go because I knew, like, if I went to the hospital, I was going to get harmed there. If I went to a, a rehab, they were going to hurt me, you know? Yeah. I didn't want to be hurt anymore, you know? And it's like, people will need help, but they, you know, like, all these things that, these legislations that are supposed to be helping people, often they're actually harming people. So, like, I'm, I'm curious how, if anyone has ideas about how we can work with, uh, I don't know, the, the legal system and, and change some of that. Okay. I think there's lots of interest in that. Yeah, I mean, anyone can take this on. I mean, well, there's, 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 there's like a lot of treatment, but there's also some other so, folds there. I, I just want to start with that side. That is, you know, we simply do not, given the size of the overdose crisis, we simply do not have enough um, um, high-quality, evidence-based treatment in many American locations. There's very few who do that actually have enough. Um, and so, so just as the, as the medical sort of public healthy person here, I just say that all routes toward us would be better 
if we simply had more of it, more money, more providers, more medications. Low threshold buprenorphine is a very good answer here. There's a couple of locations that are, are trying this out. Um, um, but whether it's through the emergency room or through LEAP programs, some pre-rest diversion, um, uh, if it doesn't get to high quality treatment that people like, that's culturally appropriate, that people will, will be able to stay with and kind of you know, go through their stuff with and, and, and work with and stuff like that, um, uh, none of it works. I mean, none of it. The, the end, end result has to be a good one. So there are about like 30,000 cardiologists. There's only a few thousand addiction medicine physicians. We just, like, I don't know where you live, sir, but. Baltimore. Yeah, like, there you go. There, there's, there's not enough treatment. We, we have time for one more, uh, we have, or a couple more. We'll see. Do, do you want to do a lightning round? Or yeah, let's yeah, do that. Yeah, fast, fast questions, yeah. No, I just wanted to say, I told, I was speaking on a story in Atlanta last year about a drug dealer named Lil Kevin and how fentanyl was becoming the norm and people was looking for it. And I was kind of ridiculed about it, but I'm telling y'all, what needs to be done is we need people that's in the streets, that's on that front line, sitting up dead, helping to educate people, and also joining, lead needs to can congregate with people from the streets and the community to help deal with this problem. It's not a problem that they can deal with on their own. They need to start collaborating and stop looking at people that because they have experience in drug use as the problem and start looking at them as helpful for the solution. Exactly. Thank you. Hey, I'm, I'm gonna speak on that real fast. You can go to uh, Sterling. Behind Sterling's you. behind you. So, and, and that's how I found out because I was unaware in my city that people were seeking fentanyl. And Ricky stood up and like, shit, they know about that. Little Kevin. And, and again, Ricky is our like, faith base. We do faith base too. He have a naloxone trainer every Sunday. We're gonna miss this Sunday. Probably not, probably since it might update because we still need to do services. But again, people, I shouldn't be sitting up here all the time. And I tell him all the time. I should. We should have someone from the street that's actively using. My father just stopped actively using. He should be here. But two, three o'clock in the morning, I was outside. And people look at me like I'm crazy. I think outside the box, my father's sick. It's not 10 hours no more. I'm gonna give him six hours. And I'm gonna look and make sure that that person actually inject them where he need to be at so he will be fine. It took a lot of energy out of me. But that's what's something I needed to do. And it's personal for me. And that's why I'm passionate about this. And the way that I deal with individuals, I deal with them. Because we talk about uh, parents that have to deal with their children. I'm a child that's dealing with my, still dealing with my parent. And um, sometimes I don't think it's being looked at like that. But I deal with everyone. And a couple of people here that I call on the regular that's out of our membership and make sure they straight and some come to my house. It's a safe space and that's what we need to invest more money in spaces where the dog go somewhere and take a shower and if you want to use the bathroom, it's none of your fucking business what he's doing in that bathroom. Alright, we, we have time for one more. I just want to make 
see your reactions to the idea that the public health system will will be will help us um, like diverting people into another coercive system that has like harmed a lot of people. I really like the comment over here that even high quality treatment. Uh, my experience is people have been in and out of that as well. So we have to ask. I would just like people to you know think about what does care look like inside the community. Like what does what does the space that people will live with every day, like what does that look like instead of taking, like diverting you from a really bad system to a, to a kind of bad system? You know, they're both really bad. They're both, they both have a history of racism and, and, and are based on capitalism and it's, it's really, I don't know, we just have to think a little harder, I think. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely, I think you're absolutely think right. It is about community, um, community ownership though and, and localizing um, as opposed to sort of um, you know this sort of like healthcare commodification model that we're working on which is really um, you know obviously healthcare is its own problem in our in our society like you pointed out and, and it isn't a panacea it's not an end-all solution and I would be I'm very concerned with the um, you know over diagnosing problematic, you know, what people think is problematic drug use, but actually they should see problematic drug use. No. Um, but, you know, and this sort of like uh, pathologizing, right, of our community instead of criminalizing, because you're right, it's just trading stigma and labels in systems that aren't designed to really um, address our needs. Okay, let's thank our panelists. to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or check out our website narcocast.com. If you like the show and you want to support us, there are two things you could do. First, subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a good rating. You can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and soon we'll be on Spotify. The second thing you can do is sign up and donate to us on patreon.com slash narcotica. There you'll receive bonus content like extended interviews and news roundups and other cool stuff. A little bit goes a long way and we can't do this show without your support. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Troy Farah, and me, Zachary Siegel. Our co-producer is Luke Spicknell. The opening credits music is by Glassboy. Thanks for listening.